Hi, this is Dan Adius, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 122 for November 30th, 2021. Well, today I have the pre pleasure of bringing you an interview with Dan Adius, who... I don't even want to mention the titles that he's, at, that he's directed because he's probably directed most of what you've seen. Um, everything from The Sopranos to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Lost to The Walking Dead to The Boys, which is uh, on Amazon currently, and lots of stuff over the last several decades. Um, welcome, Dan. How are you doing? Thank you, Gray. I'm, I'm doing well. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, and, uh, and I do want to mention one of the reasons we're here is to talk about your brand new book, Directing Great Television, which I absolutely loved. Um, and particularly because, very similar to um, Kelly Edwards, who wrote The Executive Chair, uh, interviewed her a couple episodes ago, um, before her book, there wasn't really something giving you a window into the life of an executive. Um, the other side of the room as we're pitching TV shows. I really felt before I read this book, there was this curtain um, covering of the mysteries of, of directing television. And there ha isn't a lot out there talking about what a TV director specifically goes through. And it's very different than features. And so I'm really, really excited to talk to you, to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Very, very cool. Um, just so we have context for your book, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started and what led towards television directing? Hmm. Well, after college uh, and admission to law school, which I never attended, uh, I, I, I flirted with the notion of being an actor and I studied acting for three years, and, uh, which turned out incidentally to be, I think, the best training I ever got as a director because I got, for obvious reasons, I got the experience of acting and I learned what it made sense to hear from a director if you needed help kind of arriving at a place where you could perform. Uh, but I quickly l realized that my uh, talent really was uh, more for directing because in directing I, I was able to kind of get out of my way a little better than I could in acting. In acting I was troubled by a lot of self-consciousness and a lot of kind of you know, a critic over my shoulder, and when I was kind of personally on the line being evaluated, embodying something, I, I think I didn't have as quite as much access to my inner resources as I found I did directing. And directing also permitted me to take a more primary role in the storytelling. And I think that's really my calling. That's really what I love. Uh, story is perhaps something we'll get into uh, in this talk about what it really, uh, what it really touches on, because I think we all define ourselves by stories. We have stories about who we are, which are often not even in our conscious awareness, but they rule us. They, they you know, uh, point us in directions that uh, it would be helpful to be more aware of, of what those stories were and that they are in fact stories and might be altered. So I'm, I'm fascinated by story, but that was kind of my uh, interest, which pointed me to becoming a director. Well, that, that was actually probably the, the biggest thing that impressed me about your book is um, I had previously, previously thought the director of a television show was primarily responsible for sort of setting the look of the series and, and, and the shot, working with the director of photography, of course, and then getting the performances out of the actors. But I didn't realize just how much you are a key storyteller in the process. Um, and just how much control you have over the story. Um, and there's, there's many, many anecdotes in your, in your book that, that bring that to life. Um, but, I, but I think about the, the control you have over point of view um, and also the, the subtext that you can give an actor. I mean, why don't we jump right into that? Um, how is it that you elicit the, the, the performance you want out of an actor? Well... Every actor is, of course, an individual, and directing is a very intimate process. And uh, so, so the first thing to uh, say about it, I think, really, is that you're bringing yourself to a particular individual, and you're trying to uh, help them see see the demands of the scene in a particular way. But you're you're appealing to them to do something that is quite rare and extraordinary. We, we go to shows and, and cinema and television to kind of often see actors 
live out things we would really would rather not live out ourselves. We'd like to see them have an experience that might be uh, more difficult for us. Certainly there's also the vicarious enjoyment of seeing someone kind of fulfilling a fantasy we might have. But the actor really has to be fully open to his or her inner resources and, and channel what wants to come through. You know, the best actors do this. That aren't, that aren't simply technical performances where they're kind of you know, showing you something as opposed to really embodying it. So what's important for the actor is to have an open channel to less conscious resources even. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do in, in approaching the actor first is in getting their trust, being as authentic as I possibly can be so they will be more inclined to open, first to me, but really what my goal is for them to open to themselves. And then to help direct their attention to where I feel the needs of the story are for this particular scene. So that, you know, it's a common misconception. People think, like on a television show in its third or fourth year, oh, this actor knows the character. Well, that's certainly true. They, they are closer to the character, certainly, than I am in coming in, say, in that situation. But it's my job to make sure that, this, that every moment is, is focused and is a building block, is an element of the story we're telling. So often I'm really in the position of trying to uh, acquaint them, familiarize themselves with what story are we telling, what is this moment in the story, what are their character's intentions, what's the motivation, what's the, what are the obstacles they're going to confront, so that we can really make every moment in the scene rich with dynamism. Uh, that's what I think is compelling to watch. You want to watch something happening. You know, you don't want to just see something presented. Uh, and so I'm always trying to emerge with what feels to me like life, like a truthful moment. And, you know, if you really examine every moment you live, you always have a motivation, you always have an intention, you're always kind of uh, having an experience. Uh, you're not just reading lines because it's your turn to speak. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to say to you in the next minute. So, you know, you really are trying to help the actor get to that state where even though the lines are scripted and they may have rehearsed them and known them and we know what's going to happen down the line, you try to get them to a point where they can have a fresh experience in each moment and that each, uh, and be present to their partners in the scene. Because, you know, if you have a plan, for example, how you're going to act the moment, it will feel like that. If you're not responsive to the, you know, to what your acting partner kind of gives you, you're, you're missing all the many ways real human interaction occurs. So getting the performances is, uh, is one of the great challenges and opportunities and, and uh, responsibilities of a director. And there are many, many ways uh, it, it can be approached. And it really depends so often on the individual with whom you're dealing. Some actors need simply to know their intention. You know, if they don't, and they've, and they've likely given it some thought. So I'll be, you know, responding to what I sense is their intention. Often I'll have to mirror, I'll want to mirror back to them, particularly if I want to make a change, an adjustment. I'll want first to mirror back to them that I understand what their intention was, that they were playing. So that they can feel seen. This is just, you know, it's like, it seems to me basic human relations. It's like we all feel, we all want to be seen. An actor is likely given a lot of thought to the performance they're going to, you know, have, give. And uh, to simply come in and say, no, 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 do it this way, runs the risk of really dispiriting them. You know, it's like, well, you know, did you even see what I was trying? So I like to kind of first make sure that they feel seen. But then I'll, I'll if, if it's not serving the story, I'll I'll try to acquaint them with how I perceive this moment in the story and what I believe the intention might be. And giving them an intention is kind of the first most basic way to kind of, uh, you know, approach adjusting a performance. But that's, that's, only, that's only one element. I mean, then, you, then you're going to want to talk about, like, okay, what are the, what's the opposition to your intention? What are the obstacles to it? And, and, and you, start, you start working with each scene and... and you know, it's interesting, a lot of scenes, uh, actors might come in with, uh, understand an intention and play it, but it doesn't change in the course of the scene. They're playing the same beat and the same intention the, the whole way. 
when in reality, I think, you know, we adjust our intentions based on how they're received, how our gambit, how our play has been, you know, received. Did we get what we wanted? Or, oh, I see this person is uh, cagier than I thought. I might have to adjust, you know, my strategy. And scenes for scenes to stay alive, uh, you need that sense of, well, that sense of life, of really, you know, why, so, so I'll try to look for, you know, what has just happened in the exchange that has led to an adjustment? What's the strategy? Um, physicalizing is something I think is really also important in, in eliciting a performance. I think, you know, the, the body is, I, I write this in the book, on the, uh, of a chapter on addressing this whole subject on getting the performance, but, you know, the body is an exquisite organ of expression. I mean, even now, here I'm using my hands. It's, you know, it's like when I'm invested in trying to convey something to you, it's like, it's wonderful if it's embodied, you know, as opposed to me just kind of sitting here answering the question. Uh, and in scenes, we com and in, in, in life, actors, uh, human beings communicate physically. You know, we've heard a lot about body language. You know, sometimes I think in terms of staging a scene, it's it's interesting to consider how a scene would be received if you just turned the sound off and just watched. And could you understand in the behavior of the characters what was going on? And I think generally the scenes are more, certainly more embodied that way, but also deeper. I think they, they create in the actor a less self-conscious, more spontaneous performance when they can get out of their heads and and actually get assisted by the movement they make. So I'll also try to work with actors in terms of physicalizing their intention. So you have an intention, but then I, I, I like to see it physicalized. So, and there's all kinds of sly, subtle, interesting ways, uh, you know, actors can do that. I mean, just, just something as basic, for example, as um, if a character is uh, depressed, they may be in a certain posture. You know, and you kind of get that sense if they're down. Or if they're full of uh, life and, you know, full of themselves, they're going to be positioned a different way. Or if they don't really want to confront the other person, they may find activity. As you're entering me, yeah, but let me just kind of attend to this stuff over here. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. You know, they'll find physicality that will assist them in accessing the motive, but also assist the audience in understanding it. Mm. Well, and you talked a lot about how, as a director, you... You have to be very self-aware and honest with your own um, motivations and intentions. Um, and you talked about how if you, if you don't do that, how you can have a bias towards the performance. Talk about that. Well, the path of directing has been, I love it so much because it's, it's deeply humbling. Because, uh, first of all, I think to do it well, you have to confront not knowing to make discoveries which are going to be fresh and interesting for your audience and for you know and and serve the material i think you know it's more exciting when you make discoveries and because i think you want we want the audience to experience discovery within themselves uh, so uh it's humbling in that respect uh and also i've learned too that uh we all as i've mentioned a moment ago, uh, we all have our own narratives of who we are. And uh, if, for example, we made a determination that, like, I can't experience a certain emotion. I don't want to touch rage. I don't want to touch my anger. You know, it's going to be very hard to really, in a full-bodied way, encourage an actor to get in touch with that if that's what the scene requires. Now, if you're not even conscious of this problem, of this, I wouldn't say it's a problem, we all have blockages, you know, but if you're not even conscious of it, you may not even let yourself go there in imagining for the actor that this is what really might be under, underpinning the scene and, and encouraging the actor to explore that. Uh, I mean, that's a real basic kind of uh, example of that. Really, your process begins when you first get the script, long before you get to the set, and uh, and I I really got a, an appreciation appreciation for just how much work you put in to to understanding the the motivations and intentions in every scene and and at least the impression I get is that there's often times where um, you have to do extra work to really bring out 
uh, the, the, the truth of a scene. Yeah, one of the things I love about directing series television is the opportunity to enter so many different worlds, really. And I consider every show essentially to have its own world. And by that I mean, you know, its own sensibility, its own way of kind of presenting drama, its own tone, its own visual style, how it, how it asks, you know, it, it allows us to see, you know, what, what, what angles it presents and how it sees the world. So it has, each show has its own sensibility, its own, you know, qualities. And I'm often really drawn to shows where excite me and feel different and I get particularly excited about getting an opportunity to direct them because I know in order for me to tell a story in that world, I have to completely immerse myself in it and make it mine. Make, you know, learn to see in the way this show sees. It's like the metaphor I like to use, it's like it's, it's as if I want to fully learn the language of it so I can then speak it in my voice. I don't want to be just mimicking things. I don't want to say, okay, they do this kind of angle, I'll just do that kind of angle. It's like, that's technical and, and, and probably less impactful. But, I mean, really what, uh, what I think any of us bring as directors is ourselves, is our unique kind of response to the material. What we, uh, you know, I, I also feel if I can't succeed at finding a way I personally care about, a story I'm telling. I don't think I can make anybody else care about it. So I have to find a way to connect in a way I deeply care about and can invest in. Not just uh, because it becomes important to me, but also it calls up my own creative resources. It's like it's like it's something that, you know, I, again, it's that interesting place of having to kind of be willing not to know and to be willing to uh, you know, call on resources to come come to one's assistance, and that's where discoveries are made. And if you don't care about them, I don't think those resources are gonna are gonna be there for you. Uh, so every show, you know, my I feel my job is to immerse myself in it. Uh, you know, you mentioned you know accurately that my my sense of these shows is that is that you know when I'm directing or any director is is the storyteller. But what's interesting is that in series television you're also serving the vision of the showrunner. So to call, it, to call it your story is a little misleading. It's not really one's own story. It's the story that has been, uh, it's the opportunity that has been given to you to, uh, to add to the ongoing story of this particular show and to be faithful to, to that story, to be consistent with every, all the elements, to honor what the writer's or showrunner's intentions are, but unless, my feeling is, unless I can make that story mine, take responsibility for the storytelling while I am directing it. I understand when I finish it, I'll edit it and turn it over and they'll do what they want to do. But hopefully I've enhanced it. Hopefully I've enriched it. I've taken it to places that don't contradict what, they, what the showrunners or writers want, but actually enrich it, you know. You know, uh, so that and that's because otherwise, you know, then what what are we bringing? What are we? You know, why are we here? And it's uh, it's such a collaborative art filmmaking. There's so many people contributing creatively that uh, that's another thing. I I, I hope I'm uh, that I'm able to kind of elicit the creative contributions of my collaborators because everybody has their own area of expertise, particularly department heads. You know, the, the director of photography is. A, you know, as a particular way of seeing and has ex expertise in that area. The, the prop, the art director has, you know, his or her own, you know, strengths. And the job of directing is often to really elicit everybody's uh, buy-in on the vision you're trying to, you know, uh, convey and uh, to bring their own creativity. The director is the one who kind of needs to assess, does this particular suggestion support the story I'm telling or we're all telling or not? Very, very cool. And um, in that collaboration, I'm, you know, it's not un unlike a, a TV writer, staff writer on up, um, you're serving the vision of the, the showrunner, but that doesn't mean you don't bring your own expertise to the table. Um, and you might have some writers who excel in the funny, 
and some excel in the drama and you might have some episodes that are more humorous episodes and and some are more dramatic and and so of course we know um the the director can make a huge difference uh, <laughs> i don't know if it'd be fair to say an example uh there are two versions of dune yeah <laughs> the one that just came out exceptional the other one not so much same story mm-hmm. well just to kind of pick up on a few of the themes you just mentioned uh there really is no such thing as just shooting the script go shoot the script some some people you know use that phrase it, you know what that would be as far as i can tell would be photographs of words on a page a script needs to be interpreted and translated and brought to life by all the many you know uh, you know elements that are available you know of course to the to the to the actors and everybody else but the director is the one who is really charged with with interpreting it and uh, you know so one of the things that happens on most television shows is that there is something called a tone meeting so that when i get a script for example i'll i'll i love these tone meetings because i get to sit with the writer or the showrunner or both and uh, really drill down on each scene and really inquire what was in your mind when you were writing this scene and what what what's the uh, what's the intention here? What's the point of view? What do you hope? What do you, what do you hope to emerge from after this scene? What has happened, you know, between the characters? How does that prepare for this next scene? Uh, you know, I'll try to get everything that was in their mind. I'll also try to get a sense of the subtext, and by that I mean, you know, what is really going on apart from what is said, because you know. Uh, in life, we very rarely speak our truth. We often don't even know what our truth is. We're motivated by things we may not, may not even be conscious of. But even if we are, uh, we're you know we're very self-protective and guarded, and and feel like we have to present only partial truths. But the real drive, the real intention, for example, is is often below the surface, below the lines. So that's something I really want to find out from the writers what what they believe you know, is going on on the subterranean levels of the storytelling, because that's where it really lives, I think. Yeah. That's what you're really hoping for. Uh, and then it's, it's, it's my job to interpret that and to, and to bring it alive. And uh, now often uh, the writers will really give me plenty to, to work with in a way that I can then connect to. Okay, I, I know the story we're telling. But, you know, there's also the, the, the truth that, you know, it's like, I also regard that as an invitation to me to see what I can do to uh, enhance that and maybe maybe make some of the same story points in other ways. Say, for example, visually that the writer might not have thought about. Like a point of view that you know, some character kind of we establish is what that character is looking at or, or how, I, how I shoot the coverage. If it's going to, if I'm gonna wait, if I wanna direct the audience's attention to what is at issue, and whose point of view it is, that'll affect how I'll, how I'll choose my camera angles. So uh, all of these things are, are, you know, are things I can bring to bear once I've determined what story are we telling. Now sometimes the story that you know, the writers will convey to me doesn't excite me. Well, I can't just say I'm not doing it. And I rarely can you know, have the option of saying, how about a rewrite to, you know, because I'm generally handed the script like seven or eight days before I have to start shooting, and that you know there's a raft of things that have to be done to prepare. But I have to do my own inner work at figuring out how might I connect to this, how might I make this exciting to me, and and therefore exciting to the audience. How can I make this something I can care about? And that's when I have to go to work and try to really drill down in ways that maybe the writers were not thinking of. But I try to use what they've done as an inspiration. So it's not going to contradict what they're saying, but it might, it might uh, augment it and give me something to kind of sink my teeth into, perhaps give me a way to suggest an actor think about something. And uh, you know, often at the end of the day, uh, it's invisible to the writers. They may not, they say, oh, this scene really worked great. They may not be conscious even of what, what work you know, the actors and I and others have done to kind of make it feel alive, but that's, and it's not their job to tell us how to do it. Their job is to write good material, and our job is to interpret it and make it come alive. Mm-hmm. And you've got some great anecdotes and case studies in your book, and we obviously don't have time to go into every one. Um, but why don't you illustrate, uh, say, for instance, 
uh, you had a courtroom um, series of scenes in Homeland yeah. that just weren't, I don't know if you would say that they weren't working for you, but you weren't getting to the um, performance yeah, you needed. Yeah, that was interesting, because Homeland is a show I was privileged to direct for all but one of its seasons, and uh, I mean, an episode or two each year. And uh, it was a show I loved. And I'd always, every, every time, you know, if my episode was, say, episode number eight, you know, I'd be reading all the scripts and I'd be so excited, oh, this is fantastic. And uh, sometimes I'd, I'd been fortunate to get scripts. There was one in particular in the fourth season, which is among my favorite shows that I've been able to direct. It was, it was uh, called 13 Days in Islamabad. It was the takeover of the American Embassy in Pakistan. It was just filled with with both great action and deep character stuff and just something happening every turn and stakes could not be more enormous and so it was really exciting and then and then this particular episode you're alluding to which I do write about in the book in more detail than I'll be able to give here but it was in I think the sixth season and I'd been following along and the stories were oh this is great I can't wait and and the high stakes drama was fantastic and I got my script and suddenly they it seemed like they had just called a halt to all the high-stakes drama. Everything was kind of just, everything else was treading water so that they could focus on about a 20-page trial sequence where Carrie Matheson, played by Claire Danes, was uh, trying to retain custody for her daughter, Franny, who, uh, and Carrie's sister, was uh, petitioning to take over. And not only was there a 20-page trial sequence, but all of Carrie's uh, scenes leading up to that were preparing for it. And not only that, uh, in the previous episode, she had had a manic episode and was put in a hospital and was given uh, uh, electroshock therapy so that at the beginning of the, of the uh, episode, she was kind of not the Carrie we were used to seeing. She was very kind of, I wouldn't say numbed, but did not have her normal reactive kind of impulses. So I'm thinking, okay, how to make this uh, dramatic? And I, of course, talked to the writers and they said, well, and what became clear was that uh, there was an overriding series need for Carrie's character to be done with parenting Franny because she was about, in the next season, the fans of the show will recall, I guess this was the second to last season because uh, she winds up going to Russia, and if you remember the way the series <laughs> panned out, she was like a prisoner in Russia for eight months, and she comes back. You know, it's like so dealing with a child yeah. that you have responsibility for was kind of had to be dealt with. So they're going to say, okay, this is the way we're going to get rid of uh, uh, her parental responsibilities. The problem, as I saw it, was the way the trial scene was written was it was a parade of witnesses coming on the stand talking about how terrible a parent Carrie Matheson had been, all the terrible things she had done, ignoring Franny when some world crisis had happened and she had to run off to some place or when some terrorist came around her doorstep and the child was witnessing something horrible. And all the times the sister had to intervene to kind of take care of Franny. So it was parade, relentless assault on her parenting. And not only that, there was no new information. We all, we'd all seen all of these things happen. <laughs> so it's like you're on the witness stand. Yeah, yeah, this happened. Yeah, remember in season three, that almost happened. Almost like a clip episode. And remember, yeah, it was almost like a clip episode without the benefit of the clip. It was just talking, right? And, uh, and what was really confounding to me was Carrie had no, there was no dialogue of her, cro of her, her, her attorney cross-examining anything. So it was this, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, you know. And at the end of the day, she says, okay, my sister can have, can have <laughs> So I'm thinking, okay, I get the overall need of the show. We've got to deal with this. But my episode has to, not because it's my episode, this episode has to stand on its own as a, as a viable episode, right? So I asked the producers, I said, so okay, what's your thought on how this works dramatically? And they said, but, you know, and it was a kind of an interesting, I thought it was an interesting idea. They said, well, because Carrie has electroshock therapy, she's able to hear this thing in a new way. And yes, she went through all these experiences, but each time these witnesses give her information, 
she's hearing, oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, that really sucked for, for <laughs> you know. And it's like, as she hears this all in a new way, she finally realizes, you know, I guess this kid would be better off without being with her. And uh, so that was the conceit. That was the idea. See, it's great she had electrothought therapy because she's like going to hear it finally. Okay, and I'm thinking, all right, intellectually it kind of makes sense, but how dramatic is that? It's like, and, and if we're going to have this hearing, don't we want the audience not to anticipate the outcome? Don't we want to see some, some spirit to prevail from Carrie? Some fight in her. Not shrill, she's not reactive, but because she loves her daughter so much, right? So uh, I asked for some dialogue additions. I said, can we have maybe someone challenge this witness? And I said, no, we really don't think so. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, so what, what's the turn? Why does it need 20 pages then? What, what's the turn where she makes the decision? Because I have to, you know, convey that. And their, their note was, well, we think when the sister, who's been her adversary in this, uh, when the sister gets on the stand and says, you're a hero, I think you're a hero. And I think she says it in a negative way, like I was never a hero like you are, but you're a hero. That turns Carrie, that her sister could call her a hero. And I'm thinking, mm, I kind of understand it, but it doesn't go in as viable. And I'm thinking, not only that, uh, why would Carrie believe her sister? Her sister has been presented for seasons. They've always had this kind of conflict. Whenever she's, the sisters had to take care of Franny, the sisters kind of, Carrie, you know, you got to do better here. I can't believe you're doing this again. You know, there's this kind of passive-aggressive kind of uh, shaming going on. And now, now she's going to court and going to war. And it's, it is a war. The previous episodes have shown it's a war. And they're not even speaking together. They're, you know, you know Carrie is furious, and the sister is, uh, Maggie is the character's name. Wonderful actress, Amy Hargreaves. And uh, so uh, I'm thinking, why would, you, why would she be such a softy? It's like she's in this courtroom where she's going to lose the thing she loves most in life, and her sister is about to get everything she wants so isn't it easy just to say hey you're a hero hey you you're good you you know it's like why would she believe that why would she think there's you know so it didn't really land for me but I couldn't really I said okay it's my job to tell this story so the first thing I started to consider is okay how can I maintain audience interest so the first thing I thought of is like all right Claire Carey is not going to have any opportunities to cross-examine but I need the audience to feel she's, she's, and she's also hearing that I've done these terrible things and they're really going in, all right? But how can I avoid defeatism? How can I avoid at the beginning of the whole trial sequence or the middle of it even, or right up to the end of it until she turns, how can I avoid the feeling that she's given up or that she's just, you know, criticizing herself horribly? And I came to this, I thought, okay, well, so, which is really a question, how should Claire Danes play it? So I thought, well, this seems to me the only motivation that feels like it has some promise is, yes, speaking as Carrie, yes, I see all these things, but they're going to make me feel determined never to do them again because I really see the damage. So as they go in and I see it, it's, my belief is it's going to make me a better parent because I'm finally seeing this. So I'm going to be a better parent. Not only that, I'm the only one who, I love Franny more than anybody else in the world could. So I am therefore her best parent. So I am gonna be a better parent and I am gonna learn from all these things. So I needed to convey that sense, but there was no dialogue to support it. Wow. So I, I thought, okay, so I met with Claire. Not, this is a not usual thing you do in episodic directing, uh, especially with characters who know their characters quite well. But I arranged for a pre-production meeting with Claire. And I said, look, this is our challenge in the show. Uh, this is how I make sense of it. And I described exactly that. And she said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So I said, so somehow you're going to have to walk that tightrope just in your looks, just in your <laughs> facial expressions of like really hearing 
these, these horrible stories about your behavior, as if for the first time, really understanding what a disservice it's been to your daughter, and also that it's going to make you a better parent, and you're not going to give this child up. Otherwise, we don't have, a, we don't have conflict, right? Yeah. So she says, great. So she, and I knew if anybody could do it, Claire Danes could do it. Yeah. She's great, right? But that wasn't enough. You know, it's like, uh, and so then I started to think in the filming, okay, I'll give her physical, physical things to do. Like as, as the witnesses are testifying, even though her lawyer is sitting there mum, she'll be, I'll have her make notes. Oh, he said that. Like, like she's mounting a defense. She's thinking of an answer, you know. So I said, okay, I got that. But still, it just wasn't landing for me. And the thing that really wasn't landing for me was the moment of the turn that she's going to be called a hero and she's just going to say, oh, I forgive you for coming to court to take my sister away. I'm a hero? That's great. I really like myself now. And I'll just give you my daughter. I didn't, I didn't buy it, right? So a, a sequence like this takes, it was 20 pages. It took two or three days to film. I forget what. And uh, for those of you who bristle at my gut, 10 pages a day. But, you know, in a courtroom situation, sometimes you can do that because people are just stationary. And you, we had three cameras and all that. But it was still broken up. And the first day we did all this testimony. And uh, Claire was doing her best to do all this. And the next day was going to be the crushing testimony, which was going to be the sister finally getting on the stand. And in that testimony, what was scripted was, you know, her being very, you know, adamant about, yes, uh, you know, she did this and she did that. And not only that, it was worse because this happened also. And then what was scripted was the judge says, uh, and I understand you have something more you'd like to say. That you'd like to read a statement to her. She says, yes, I would. And she takes the statement and then she puts it down. She looks at it and she says, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to talk to my sister. And she says, and, she, and I asked, you know, in the tone meaning, I'd asked the writers, okay, so what do we feel is happening there? And what I emerged with was a sense like she was kind of lamented that things had gotten so adversarial and so angry and she was just gonna say look you know let's not be at war you know I I really don't hate you this is not about me you know this is this is you know let's take just get human I just really think this is best for Franny she tried to make a uh, an appeal that way yeah and and I just the night before she was going to testify I was still sticking in my craw how could I make this interesting and I started to think I tried to put myself, which is what one does as a director, is like, I started to think, what would it take to move me if I were in Carrie's position? What would it take to move me from my sister's testimony that after that I'm going to agree to give up my daughter? And I couldn't for the life of me come up with anything that I had been given to think about before or that I had come up with before until I started to think, maybe I've been thinking about this wrong. And this goes to like, defining the story, right? Because the story I'd been thinking about, this is where Carrie, this is the story of Carrie giving up custody of her child. Which it is. That's one way to think of the story. But then I thought, well, what if, what if, if I were in Carrie's position, what would move me? And I thought, okay, what about in the sister's testimony? If I were watching my sister testify in those situations, what would cut through my own rage at her and judgment at her and this butting of heads that we've already done for three seasons or five seasons? And I realized, well, what if she is facing as big of a challenge as Carrie is in some important way? What if this testimony is as difficult for her as it needs to be for Carrie, as this whole process has been for Carrie? And I started to think, what if this is... I just came up with a dramatic idea. It's like, what if this is the hardest thing she's ever had to do in her life, coming to give this testimony? And I started to think, why might that be? And I thought, well, and I started to look at the dialogue. And I started to think, well, in the dialogue is interesting. When she puts down the written statement and wants to talk directly to Claire, Carrie, uh, she recites their family history. And I started to really read that family history. And what it revealed was she was recounting a history in which she always felt less than her sister. She always felt Carrie was the apple of the father's eye. 
She was always the adventurous one. She was the always the one who would climb the tree or would, you know, do the do the you know bold adventurous thing, and that she herself felt she couldn't do those things, and so she admired her sister. And uh, but then she goes on to say, but you know, you know, there are other things. You know, I'm not a hero. You're, you know, I'm not a hero. I'm just a person. But I think I'm really better with Franny. Now that was always presented to me in the tone meeting and elsewhere. Like, so that's her gambit. She's trying to say, look, let's just, you know, put the fighting aside. But then I started to think, what if that's the most difficult thing she's? What if she's never admitted these things to the world? And what if she's been felt shame about it herself? I started to construct a whole kind of idea. Like, wow, what if she's admitting something in this public setting that is the hardest thing for her to admit? Namely, I have always felt less than you. I have always, I have battled my own self-esteem because what a star you were, and I hated you. So to say that as a confession, as a source of shame, instead of like, you know, you were great and I hated you and this and that, but I, no, to make it the most difficult thing she ever have to say, and why would that be so difficult? Because it's something she was felt she still felt shame about. She still felt less than her sister. And then I started to think, well, that would move me if I felt this person on the stand was really struggling with something and was paying a price to share this in order to get to the deeper point. Like, so I felt all those things, but that's not why I'm doing this now. I have to come clean to you so that you can see my true motivation. And then what I loved about this, I'm not finished going on, I hope your listeners aren't bored already for how long-winded I'm going on this, but uh, what I always felt watching the seasons prior, I mean, all the episodes, is there was something funny about it. She was always a little sanctimonious in putting Carrie down for you're not being a good parent. I mean, for God's sakes, Carrie was saving a terrorist attack and doing all these other things, you know. <laughs> and, and I realized... There's a certain passive, it could be, we could reinterpret that as a kind of certain passive aggression. A weakened character who hasn't really owned her own value, who feels less than her sister, but can lord it over her a little bit by saying, you're not a good parent. And I thought, that's what she's confessing. She's saying, you know, our history is troubled. I haven't been straight with you all these years. But it's important for me that you know that's not why I'm doing this. This girl is suffering, and I have to come clean to you in this moment, so you can understand my true motive. It's not to make you feel bad, you know. And I thought if she really carried that off, that intention off, Carrie would be moved. And what's interesting then is, okay, so what turns her? Uh, it's not that she's calling her a hero. It's what she says after she's admitted I've always thought of, you are a hero and I'm not. She's, she's acquired credibility for Carrie. All right, you've admitted what, you know, secretly I always kind of thought, yeah, you were envious of me. I know I'm a hero. <laughs> I know I'm doing something very important. And now you're finally acknowledging it. Maybe it has equal standing with being a parent, you know. <laughs> and it gave her credibility so that the next thing she said, Carrie could hear. And the next thing she says, after she's kind of accepted a kind of humiliation for herself, faced the thing she's never been willing to face in public, in front of everybody, she says, okay, so I've always felt less than you. But don't we know, and I know, you know, I know your intentions are good for Franny, but don't we, can't we admit that the next time Saul calls, you're going to go do it because that's who you are? And it's that that gets Carrie to see it. She sees that she's right. She says, yes, I'm under, I'm in a different place now. I'm not manic depressive, I've read this thing. But she's right, because who I am is someone who has to perform this. So that, to me, changed the whole, and what's interesting to me is it changed the story, it added to the story. It wasn't just a story about Franny, uh, Claire's gonna, Carrie's gonna give up her daughter. It's, it became a story about the rapprochement of two sisters. It became a deep story about a family. And it became truth-telling within the family. All right, so I figured all this out. I said, 
great, I finally got it. So now it's the night before, and I had to call up. I said, I can't just spring this on Amy, the actress, tomorrow. Just here, here, take this and run with it. So I called her up in the evening, and I said, you know, uh, I have an idea, and I'd really like to share it with you. And I'd really like you to rethink your motives, your intentions. And I told her this, and she was like, whoa, it's a huge sea change for everything she'd been approaching. But she loved it. And it's like, and actors will love, it's like when you give actors, when you find something that finally feels true Mm. with real stakes and deepens the characters. uh, And by deepening, it's like, you know, the worst thing is when an actor wants always to be liked and thought well of. It's like, no, the actors want their characters to be that way. It's like the great actors, and Claire is certainly one of these, and Amy is as well, you know, want to play something real. And she finally had something real to play that was interesting, and she just took the challenge, and the next day she gave this fantastic performance. And the lines are still very spare. I mean, to this day, I'll look at that, and I'll still be so moved, because I'll know what she's working with, and I think it comes through, but with very spare lines, because I couldn't get any lines changed. But anyway, so... Well, and, and that's a great illustration of the fact that um, it's, it's often not about changing the lines at all. It's, it's about the subtext and... and what else you bring to the scene. And finding, it's, to me, it's, all, it's also about, you know, asking questions of oneself. What would interest me? What is, what, how is this affecting me? And it's like, it kept affecting me as fraudulent. You know, it's like that wasn't, I mean, another thing I, I, I feel about that scene is it's like, you know, the, the showrunners gave me a certain idea about how this change happened. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, in a story or a script, you know, you can want something to happen. And you can try to justify why it happens. You know, like, she called her a hero, and that's why it happened. You know, you can even say that it happened. Okay, it happened. But that's different from the felt experience that it actually has happened. That's what the director can bring. It's like, so that the audience, you know, I don't think anybody would even be conscious of that. Fans of the show, by the way, might have treated this as like, okay, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, but to me, that's so exciting because it's like you create the felt, the sense of truthfulness. It's like it's there. It's not, and it's not like figuring it out. Oh, it happened because of that. Oh, yeah, I get it. No, you feel like you're witnessing it happening. And on deeper levels, I think, you know, I, I think... I think those those changes gave the audience an opportunity to experience is really happening. I may be biased, but I don't think we ever remember the explosions or the car chases. I think we remember those truthful moments. I couldn't agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. Yeah, and I think, you know, I guess we all come to these experiences with different desires. I mean, you know, for example, I've never been a fan of, like, revenge movies and all that, and I'm sure... People want confirmation of their stories, their narratives. You know, it's like, I want to see those guys killed. Oh, yeah, let's, you know, Dirty Harry or whatever. It's, oh, good, they're getting, the bad guys are getting, you know. That's a very limited way of approaching stuff. I think most people really want to see, see truth. What, uh, see us and, and see, and, and it's so great because, you know, stories give us an opportunity to affect people in the deepest ways because they give us an opportunity in telling a story to ask a viewer to kind of re-examine the narratives of their own life. You know, like, for example, Battling Prejudice. You know, a lot of, you know, well-meaning stories, you know, try to do that, like humanize a certain population. That's like The Wire, which I was fortunate to direct as well. You know, it presented, you know, drug dealers and the underclass in nuanced ways that had never been presented before. So suddenly, the narratives people might have of the drug culture, you know, are different because they saw a different story and they saw the humanity in these different characters in The Wire that they that they might have just written off as, oh yeah, those are those bad guy drug dealers and stuff like that. Well, that's interesting. Or The Sopranos is interesting too. It's like how, you know, you took a mobster but put him in therapy. Make him a family man. You, see? Yeah. you know, you can't just write off, uh, you know, Tony as being just a, you know, big mook and a killer it's like wait a minute Jesus like he has these these horrible impulses and these these drives that are scared the hell out of me but in many ways I identify with him because he's also cares about his daughter and you know so it 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 makes one it has it has a chance of effect of ask of getting people to kind of deepen there and and develop empathy Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about um 
junior writers, um, you're, you're a staff writer, you're gradually moving up the ranks. Usually you don't get to go on set until you're at the producer level, which is sort of midway up the chain. Um, there's very little to prepare that new producer to how to be on set. And there's a lot of um, your first time on set, you're trying to sort of figure out everything and, and um, you wrote that script for that episode and so you feel strongly about the scenes but there can be a lot of um, communication issues and things like that that can impede your work as a director. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, for a long while it was very unusual for writers to be on the set. The Directors Guild has been very strong in kind of establishing certain creative rights for the director and and several of them uh, you know they're still in place where for example writers are not permitted to talk to actors give actors notes on a set you know unless the director has asked for that or permitted that uh, you know and and there's also as the director's guild is often also fighting for you know not being right over a director's shoulder and to let the director find the staging, for example, or develop the scene in, in repeated takes without, you know, assaulting them with a ton of notes right away. Do it this way, do it this. You're getting in the way of the creative process of the director. A lot of writers, I, you know, and unfortunately, really don't appreciate what a director brings in and, and what the process is in terms of developing a performance, bringing an actor along not necessarily telling them everything in one slew of notes and like they're at television so you just turn a knob and you know it's like it's interpersonal so you know the the sets how sets ought to operate is that is that the director uh is the one delivering notes however i personally uh do enjoy uh having writers with me so long as they understand you know i have to translate you can, a writer you know i'll, I'll always welcome input if they think a certain subtext isn't getting realized or it's going in a direction which is different than they intended. I want that input. I want the, right the writers to be pleased. I mean, if they're the showrunner, they're my boss. I mean, they're, they're the ones who are going to determine if I come back or not, you know. So I'm, I, and I, and I do have, as I hope I indicated before, I have tremendous respect for the work they've put into kind of creating this script. And they've thought long and hard about it, longer than I have. I've just started, you know, during the prep period. They've been working on it for maybe months. So their input is important, but the best showrunners and the more seasoned writers understand that the director has to carry the ball once the set, once the, once the set is in operation. Now, most shows, many shows, I'd say the majority in my recent experience, the writers are on set with you. They're sitting with you at the monitor. And, uh, and I personally enjoy that so long as I say they understand the boundaries, understand, uh, you know, procedures. Uh, sometimes with, you asked about young, young writers on the set, and I, you know, most showrunners understand this, most seasoned writers understand this. When you get an inexperienced writer on set, a couple of things can happen that are possible pitfalls. Uh, one, that writer considers his or her boss to be the showrunner, and they want to make sure, they feel like they're an emissary of that person, and they've spent hours in the writer's room talking about a particular scene, and they you know, dread that the scene might get shot and finished, and all kinds of things weren't in it that had been talked about in the room, in the writer's room, you know, and so they'll get anxious about it not being done, or maybe the showrunner had expressed, I think this is gonna be great if at that moment this character stands up and moves over and does this thing and it's like and what if that's not in the staging and and it's like it gets nervous it's not going to be exactly as they talked about it and when there's when that kind of anxiety comes in it can infect i mean it said is such an interesting place it's like a petri dish right it's like you know and i take that and I, the director has tremendous responsibility in setting the tone on a set you know, early in my career, I, you know, it's like, whenever, I mean, you know, one thing I talk about in the book as well is the tremendous challenge that often is unacknowledged, which is the, the vast range of emotional states you go through as a director, from stress to elation to, you know, panic and fear, all these things kind of are assaulting you as you're seeing a scene not come together or time crunch, I'm not gonna get this, and, but you're also in the position of being the leader and the one in command and the one that is kind of 
setting the tone for everybody else. So if you start running around like a chicken with your head cut off, everybody else starts doing it too, vibrating. So there's, you know, and it's, there's no magic pill to take to, you know, get around that. So, so, and, and the same goes true for a writer who is like, if they intrude in the process in a way that's not helpful, if it's disruptive, it can have waves and, you know. So I try, when I deal with young writers, what I try to do is assure them, you're gonna be heard, you know. I might say, for example, I'd really rather not get a note from you on the first take or on the first rehearsal, you know, because I may, you know, be perceiving the same thing you're perceiving and I'll have a way of kind of bringing the actor around and I'll make an adjustment, you know. But after, you know, I'd say so, I would say try to hold your fire at, until maybe take two. And I promise I'll make this guarantee too. I'll say, you know, sometimes I'll have to do this just because I can read the sense of the person. I'll say, you know, I, I won't move on. You know, if I'm happy after take two, I'll, I'll consult with you. I'll see, what do you think? Did you, do, you, do you have other concerns? You know, I may try to do that. Some directors, you know, feel like that's not even something they should do. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think of this as a collaborative process. I also recognize television. The power really resides with the writers, and for good reason, they're asked, they're asked to generate not just this script, but a whole canvas, a whole wider, you know, thing. So I like to include a writer. I like to get that input. I like, I want them to be happy. But I also want them to let me uh, get the results I think, you know, are there to get. Very, very cool. And you, you have a lot of um, very specific examples. And I, I, actually, one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you started with some horror stories. Um, you, you started with a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's not a, an exact science, I would say. Well, you know, one of the things, the points I try to make in the book is that becoming a director is so challenging in at least this respect, many respects, but in this respect in that, you know, you can't go from like partially doing it. You go from having none of the responsibility to having all of the responsibility. <laughs> you know, you can't like say, hey, we'll let Dan come in and he's starting out. Let's, you know, why don't you direct, uh, you know, this scene and that scene? Oh, that's an action scene. You'll get that one too. That'll give you a good experience. And we'll take it from there. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, there's one director. And so you don't really, the learning curve is, it, you're just thrown into the deep end, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so at the start of the career, you know, it's like, you know, if anyone has made the transition seamlessly, I think I write, I'd like to meet that person. Because it's like, <laughs> without making errors of consequence, yeah. you know, I'd like to meet that person. And I, so I did want to, you know, uh, come clean with everybody. It's yeah. like, yeah, I've had been fortunate to have a lot of success in my career and I've been able to work on fantastic shows. Uh, and I, I now am at a point where I, you know, can, can solve things, you know, often pretty quickly. But that doesn't, I, I didn't jump out of, uh, you know, the starting gate and act that way. Uh, my first jobs were challenging because of so much I didn't know. So I do relate a couple of really difficult experiences but I also want to emphasize that what felt like horrible experiences at the time were so valuable to me mm -hmm. because they made me confront myself. They acquainted me with realities on a set that I was not familiar with. Uh, and I learned tremendously, you know, it's like, and I wouldn't, I don't think I would have learned any other way, but through, you know, making, making mistakes or not understanding the situation for what it was. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's something that, it, it, it didn't strike me until I read your book, but um, I know several TV directors, including um, people who have resumes about as long as yours, and I haven't met one yet that didn't have what I would call a beginner's mind. The, and the, the ones I know who post on Instagram are constantly posting about old movies they're watching to try to learn techniques and, and things like that. Um, it sounds like that's a really big part of the craft. You know, I would even extend that to anybody who's successful at being creative. It's like, you know, the interesting thing about creativity to me is it's like, or directing a show in that particular form, is we're trying to tease something to existence that doesn't exist. You know, we're trying, I mean, that's, I mean, sure, you can rehash things, but that's not really exciting work, you know, but uh, you're trying to make this story, this particular story come alive. And it hasn't lived before. This particular incarnation hasn't. So, so you don't know where it's gonna. I mean, you have a, obviously you have ideas, 
you, you, and you're a vessel for it coming through. So you have to, you know, build the structure around it. But, but that thing that's going to emerge, you don't know. And you have to be open to seeing it. Mm. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if you have to know. Well, that's interesting because you just asked about tough experiences. That was my problem in my first episode. I wasn't willing to, for anybody to see that I didn't know. There were so many things I didn't know. And, uh, you know, part of that was my inexperience with camera. I didn't know I wasn't confident with my visual choices because film is a language. And, you know, there are certain basic rules you do need to know, like screen direction. You know, if one character is looking to the left side of the camera, the one, his interlocutor, should be looking at the right side of the camera, you know, all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so I, I felt, okay, I'm in command. I have to come off as knowing. And I was shielding even from myself that I didn't, there's so many things I didn't know and I needed help. So I've since learned, you know, only by, that not knowing can be a tremendous empowering place to be because you can, you're open to what arises by asking a question. You know, not just from within yourself, but from your collaborators. Like, how might we solve this? You know, instead of having to be the one that's the smartest one in the room and has the answer, hmm. you know, that, that leads to a lot of uh, rehashed choices, applying old choices to new situations that might not even apply, or not being open to, you know, uh, you know, discovering that one unique, perfectly appropriate choice that, you know, that you didn't know beforehand, but you can open to by what you're calling beginner's mind, which I think is, I agree with. I mean, that's uh, something in a lot of spiritual traditions that they say is kind of the enlightened state, to be really, just to be open to what can come through you. and. You know, if you don't have that, you, I, th I find you kind of recycle a lot of things and it's kind of a deadened result. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end here. The one thing I, I did want to ask as we close out is um, television has exploded. There's so many hundreds more shows than there used to be. Um, and obviously there's going to be a need for new directors. What, what would you say to somebody who wants to be a television director? What's the best way to approach getting into the industry. Yeah, that's, uh, it's very challenging for the reason I cited a minute ago that, you know, uh, you know, you, you don't get a kind of trial run at it. You don't get to do it partially. And you're, and you're asking employers to kind of take a chance on you that you've never done it before. So, you know, I think a few things. First of all, you don't get to, you don't learn how to direct by not directing. So I would really encourage young filmmakers to make films, even if you're using your iPhone and cut it together on a, you know, iMovie or something. See how your choices work. See, break down scenes, you know, figure out, you know, how would I tell this story? Here's a scene, how would I, what's it about? You know, what are the characters' intentions? And, you know, really make, you know, make some choices, see how they work out and learn from what you see, you know, resulted. So do that, get as, you know, if you can make a short film, that's all to the better. If you can make, it's funny, now it's like the entry level seems to be the easiest thing to do might be to make an independent feature for, for very little money. But you gotta get on the map and you gotta try to have to, it, you have to get material that people, you can show to prospective employers. So that's, that's important. But you know, the, the television landscape, in many ways it's harder to break into than features because it's such a condensed amount, you know, it's such a condensed process that the, the decisions have to be made quickly and, and you have less time to do it. And uh, uh, so it's, I don't really, you know, know uh, any direct line to becoming a television director. Often you really have to might maybe think about other, th other positions you can fill uh, and get on a show that way and, and get known on the show. And then maybe if you have, if you have some source material you can show, that, that's one way. Uh, you know, it, but often it's really, if you have, if you have, if you have footage you can show is, is, really, is really important. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, everybody's story is different, how they got in. And yeah. you know, some people are editors, they got into it doing that way, some people, uh, I, you know, I actually had been an assistant director, but that's not how I got hired. I went back to film school and finished my MFA and had a film, and that got me actually my first job, which was a feature, Stephen King's Silver Bullet, and and then as a result of that, I got hired on Miami Vice, which was one of my first jobs. Um, but it's, uh, I would say the most important thing, uh, developing yourself, I mean, getting the job is kind of, who knows how that's going to happen. 
you got to follow up every possible lead. You got to knock on every door. You got to be willing to deal with rejection. You got to be persistent. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. It doesn't. It's, it's like maybe that's the answer. It's like there's no direct line, but and so you got to do everything. You yeah. got you got to do everything at once. But I will say this: that the most important thing once you get the opportunity is to do your best. And I've spent my whole career getting deeper into this for myself. Is get to know who you are. Get to know what you care about. Get to know, get to respect your own instincts because that's all we bring to the table. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, I could have just stopped, like, say, on Homeland. Okay, well, they said that's how it works. And, okay, here's the scene. Here it is. I mean, that's, you know, uh, you know, it, it, that's how bad television gets directed. It's like when you haven't really consulted yourself. So you have to have an access to yourself. And you have to have a, to be an artist, I think, anyway, you have to have uh respect for your uniqueness and your unique take on things and mm-hmm. and it's and you have to value that so you know i mean people I mean, i've talked to you know students at film schools and stuff and uh, some film school professors i remember i was in a conference with some of them and they were saying what's the most important thing i said i would think the most important thing with your students is to get them to value themselves mm. and value how they see and value what they want to see and not just try to figure out, well, what will get me hired? Or what will, you know, and writers too. You know, it's like, you, yeah. gotta, you gotta write from your own passion, from your own experience. And, you know, it's like the, the more technically oriented things, like, well, this is, I mean, you gotta be smart. Yes, if a certain thing is selling, you're gonna try to market your right, you're gonna try to write a sample that might be, but if you don't care about it, if you're just trying to mimic the way that show did it or that show did it, my feeling is it's not gonna be very good. So in terms of starting out, I would just say, Follow every possible lead. Do everything you can imagine you might that might be helpful. Uh, for directing, I'd say take an acting class. Learn how to work with actors. Learn how to do actor speak. You know, read Judith Weston's book. Hopefully, yeah. read my book. I have a whole chapter on that. Yeah. Uh, but also, really learn who you are. What's important to you? What are your stories? What are what are stories that you're going to either have to put into a piece of material or be able to set aside so that you can see what story wants to be told very cool well we will end it there uh thanks so much for being so generous with your time and i will say again this is a book that every tv writer needs to have every (laughs) showrunner needs to have and obviously anybody who wants to be a television director um highly highly recommend it thank you so much great AVGearGuide.com uses state-of-the-art technology to bring new life to old films and videos, like the Lost Betty White series Pet Set, which they recently restored for its 50th anniversary. They can apply the same technology to your documentary, film and video archive, and family videos. Visit AVGearGuide.com for details. DrivingFootage.com provides 360-degree driving plates for film and TV. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. Please follow me on Twitter for the latest updates. At Gray Jones is my handle. Make sure to bookmark tvwriterpodcast.com and scriptmag.com. You can find the video version of this podcast at iTunes, Podbean, and on YouTube. Make sure you do subscribe to all these places. Audio only, you can find us at iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or Pandora. And on Instagram, you can follow at tvwriterpodcast. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.